Welcome to episode 72 of The Real Photo Show. Today is actually a special release day for two reasons. Uh, first, it is the third anniversary of what was called The Photo Show, now called Real Photo Show. And second, this will be the first live audience recording that was meant to be released as a podcast. I've done a few live events in the past, including one with my former co-host, Comic Bride. But the formats of those were always primarily a live event. And if the recordings were good enough, they could be released as an episode. But they were never good enough. Uh, this one was definitely a 50-50. Um, I knew this was going to be a podcast episode and a live event. But before we get to the show, let's do some announcements. And just to remind you, if you invite me to an event through Facebook at Real Photo Show and the event lines up with the next podcast release, I will announce it before the show. So the first event on my list is actually attached to the Light in Wartime show, organized by Rola Chayet, and also the reason why I did a live show at Apex Art, which I will get to after the announcements. So on July 26th, from 7 to 9 p.m., there's a film screening at the Mayday Space in Brooklyn, it's called Artists Respond to Gaza. So you can check that out at the apexart.org site or look for it on Facebook. Just search for Artists Respond to Gaza. This Saturday, July 21st, the Bronx Documentary Center is having a block party to celebrate its first Latin American photo festival. That runs from 2 to 6, and previous guest of the show and founder of the Bronx Documentary Center, Michael Camber, will be giving a guided tour at 4 o'clock. Go to bronxdoc.org for more information. On July 31st, from 7 to 8.30 p.m., Transcender Gallery is continuing its artist panel talks entitled Session. This one will be at Temporary Storage in Little Italy, and you could search for that on Facebook, Session July 2018. So next we have Candela Books and Gallery. They're having their fundraising gala event on Saturday, July 28th from 7 to 11 p.m. as part of their Unbound 7 exhibition. Uh, and if you remember from the episode that I recorded with Gordon Statinius, this is their big fundraiser. This is the, this is the show that they really count on to help them stay in business. Uh, so if you have any interest in Candela Books and Gallery, you want to help them out down in Virginia, check them out on Facebook. Just search for Unbound 7 Gala Event. So the last of the Facebook events is my first overseas invite, which I wish I could go to because it's in Paris. On November 10th, Photo Vintage France will be hosting Photo Paris Vintage Fair, which will have 100 tables of dealers and collectors showing off their vintage photographs. For more information, search for Photo Paris Vintage Fair, all one word, on Facebook. Okay, so the next two events are not Facebook events. Uh, the first one is Ryan Casey's Loss Event Show at the JKC Gallery, which I run. Opens August 1st, runs through September 7th. We'll have a closing reception on September 6th. That way students can also be involved. That is from 5 to 7 p.m. with an artist talk at 6 p.m., and this show is part of an ongoing series by Ryan based in the U.S. National Park System. Uh, this particular series of photos are part of Ryan's exploration of loss and grief. And you can read more about that show on realphotoshow.com. Okay, last event. I actually just got this from the International Center of Photography, and I told them I would announce it because I like ICP. Uh, all right, uh, the International Center of Photography proudly announces the debut of Vantage Point 24, celebrating 20 years, a special exhibition featuring close to 50 photographs by students and alumni from ICP at the Point. 
opening on Wednesday, July 25th from 4.30 to 6.30 at the Point CDC, 940 Garrison Avenue in the South Bronx. The evening will also include the premiere of a short documentary film created by ICP at the Point alumna and award-winning filmmaker Nadia Hallgren. And that is the end of the announcements. Now I feel like I need to have some transition music here. Oh wait, that was my old theme song. Never mind. So Rola Hayat curated a show at Apex Art uh, entitled Light and Wartime. Uh, and there were a series of events attached to the show. And Rola was kind enough to invite me to propose doing a show as one of the events attached to her show. So I decided what better way to do a first show at a new place than to discuss the history of the place. So I invited Stephen Rand, the founder of Apex Art, to be my guest on the show. We also thought it would be a good idea to have some of the staff at Apex Art to help fill in some of the technical details or further explain how the programs operate and to share some of the experiences that they've had. But of course, being a live audience participation show, I didn't know everything that was going to happen, and it turned out to be such a blast. Uh, At one point, Stephen brought up Margaret Ewing, the director of programs, uh, and started asking her questions. Um, John Kessler, the former board member at Apex Art, and one of my former advisors at Columbia University, wanted to ask Rola about her experience proposing a show. So she got up and he asked her some questions and then she asked him to come up and talk about his experience as a board member. And we just had these great unscripted conversations that I think got to the essence of what Apex Art is all about, which is a very unique place for helping curators and artists find their voice. Now, I also really need to thank two people who did not make it to the microphone, Elizabeth Larison, the Director of Operations, and Ryan Soper, the Director of Production. You actually might hear Elizabeth because I think we shout a couple questions at her and she answers from the audience, so thank you for that. Uh, But Ryan was busy behind the soundboard trying to keep the levels sane on uh, our four different microphones that were just being passed around without any concern for his job. Keep that in mind if you hear rattles and hums and other strange noises. That is not Ryan's fault. That was us just not being careful. Uh, So thank you very much, Ryan, for handling all of that. All right. So again, this is Apex Art with Stephen Rand. Enjoy the show, everyone, and we will talk soon. for coming. I don't think we need to uh, introduce a- Apex Art. I think everyone here is pretty familiar with <laughs> but... I recognize everyone in the audience. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so uh, we're here with the founder, Stephen Rand, at Apex Art. And, you know, I was going to start with some questions about your background and how, you know, how it came, you know, how um, Apex Art came to be. But, and, and we will get to some of that. But I feel like the last few days have been some of the most destabilizing days uh, that I've experienced, and I'm sure many of you have experienced, in a while. And we're, in, we're, we're recording now during Rola Hayat's Light and Wartime show. And I should thank Rola, by the way, for setting all this up. And I'm wondering you know, what your thoughts are uh, in terms of political art. You know, we, we're in a, a country where you can very easily silo yourself in terms of information and what you want to hear. We're also in a, 
in a place where there's a, a great disparity of wealth and education and, and great ignorance of history and geography and access to art. Um, it's also very expensive to be an artist if you want to be near New York or be in LA uh, on the West Coast. So do you think there's still power in political art in the United States in particular? I don't know. I think we're kind of confused in the art market, in the art world, rather. We have op an open call program. Each year we get about 1,200 proposals. And we're finding that maybe as maybe 1,100 of them are political and social topics. And we see that curators are really trying to address issues uh, and, and very commendable. They have to find and deal with artists that they're comfortable working with. We discourage them from working in art venues when our shows are uh, outside of Apex. And I'm, I'm not sure that they're answering political questions. This is a difficult situation for me, and a very difficult question uh, for me that I can't really give you a long answer for. I, I just see the confusion in the art world of wanting to be relevant, wanting to change things. Uh, is that what you would consider to be political art? I'm thinking of even some of the images on the, images on the wall here that are dealing with uh, what is objective truth and how, how does imagery accurately reflect reality? Well, that, that's Roland's show, of course. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, she would better be able to answer that for you. I think that, as you say, we're in sort of disquieting times. And the issue of war is an ever-constant situation for us. Uh, art kind of deals with perception issues, what is real, what isn't real. And the fact that this show plays uh, with that situation, um, I, I think, is one of the attractions to people. But, I mean, the images themselves are all quite compelling uh, within their own right. So I'm not sure what kind of a political effect uh, the show will have outside of the art community that might have an opportunity to visit it and talk about it. I think that your answer actually speaks a lot to the mission of Apex Art in that I, I, was, I listened actually to you on a... Oh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, so I apologize to the podcast. A podcast from about seven or eight years ago where you also talked about how if there is a message, and maybe that message isn't clearly communicated, maybe, maybe there's intent that isn't, that isn't clearly successful, that that is just as important as a show that does clearly communicate or that does have its effect that uh, was sought after. Uh, that the failures and the conversations around, not necessarily failures, but the, the perception of the show as being different, the conversation that that brings up is equally important to the original intent. Okay. Well, let me digress a little bit. In these 1,200 proposals that we get each year, people have to submit a 500-word uh, essay, kind of mini-essay, and it's a creative writing exercise. What should they write? What, uh, what's going to be most effective? What's art speak? What, what is communicative? Because our juries, about 600 people, are all from different situations. So the main issue for me is that as an educational organization, we're putting into play 1,800 people that 
are thinking about ideas and evaluating ideas. So what I find most compelling is that they selected Rolla's show and why they selected it. Because that's the process that, to be honest with you, is the one I find most compelling because we're getting a consensus of all of these people from all of these areas and they're kind of determining the content and far better than I can interpret it for you. So this is what all of these people are thinking about. So, okay, you're seeing kind of a political uh, manifestation in a way, but this is more a collection of poignant images than it is a political show in, in my head. And if it isn't, it certainly glamorizes warfare. I mean, I could live there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the green, uh, I mean, it's a pretty green. Right. Um, you know, no, they all have their aesthetic value. Right. right. So, you know, when I'm interpreting them, the, the perception that's flipping back and forth there for me between real and unreal isn't about war. It's about perception. You know, it's like, am I seeing what I'm seeing? Similarly there, you know, that, that's done with uh, infrared and the red is because it's living. So it's not a manipulated photograph, but, and I understand that there are political undertones of what is happening within it and why it's happening and how it was taken in the surveillance issues, but it's pretty too. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually we should talk more about the, the open call process I noticed that um, you know you. So this also applies to the uh, the fellowship as well. You you go out of your way to make sure that there isn't connected with who gets to curate a show or who gets selected for the fellowship. You try to do away with sort of the the avenues of promotion or the the little things that people do to uh, get themselves nominated. Right? There's a you carefully select uh, people so there's less or less chance of affiliation or association with a person they might choose to be in the show. I don't know whether our approach is good or bad, but there are organizations that try to identify the promising people and then promote them. And, and often a valid uh, situation because, you know, some, a lot of the people that are doing really notable things are really, they do them well. And, you know, it's deserving. For an artist, a lot of times you you do your work and you, you hit certain developmental points. And we think it's kind of in your 30s where you begin to question what you're doing and why you're doing it. You know, are you doing the same thing? Or, or just how critical you're being of the process. And we're trying to not direct to that group, but, um, you know, it's the larger group. It's all of us. And... I think uh, our program is very relatable for everyone, and we even suggest that people can use uh, one of the sample schedules as, as a trial to do in there. How did you come up with 30s? Well, I was 30 once, <laughs> and I knew everything at 17, and then I slowly uh, reinforced that lack of knowledge with ego and bravera. And then you get to a point where there are certain activities, certain values. If you don't grow up in France, there's a good chance you don't speak French. If you don't grow up in the art world, there's a good chance you don't 
understand, you know, how the hierarchy works. And it's a luxury mm. good. And as an artist, you don't look at your art as a luxury good. You look at it as seminal to society. And somehow you expect that you're going to have an effect in redirecting it. And at some point, people will acknowledge your worth and, you know, give you the accolades that you hope you should get. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you have this whole movie going on inside of your head in a way. And I think personality-wise, well, the art world is a funny thing because, and, and I, I take any objection from the audience, just object. <laughs> the art world, while claiming to be a, a place that encourages creativity, for me, actually did it exactly the opposite. I saw that people, as they developed a following, they had signature work, and they were encouraged to do signature work. And even though I didn't get to a point where I was investment grade in my work, I realized there was one commission I was up for, and I did something out of character for it, and they said, um, no, thank you. Whereas had I done something in, in relation to the other one, uh, I could have gotten the piece, but it was a combination of my lack of understanding about how things worked, because I thought if I did what I thought was a better piece, that they would consider it. Was that your turning point in terms of wanting to create an, a different kind of space, a different kind of model? No, I wanted to, I was angry and wanting to change the world <laughs> from an early age. Yeah. It was actually getting this building that uh, gave me an opportunity to... Um, counter the commercialization that I felt was going on by setting up a situation where people would organize exhibitions. And it wasn't for curators because this was 94. And uh, that was really when the whole curatorial uh, thing was beginning. Right. You mentioned that in the, in the history of Apex Art on the, the website that you, had, you did have this idea of, of perhaps offering a, a space, offering a way for this new idea of independent curators to work. Uh, and that, that was part of the, the model. But then independent curators became more common, right? This was a space for independent curators when independent curators wasn't as common a thing, right? When, when mm -hmm. for people to try well, we, different things. We put people in the role of curator. Right. And they were generally artists or right. other. And, and now that it is more common. I mean, there, are, there is a, a model that's taken off, the idea of the independent curator, of, of sort of making your own space and starting your own gallery or... You it's know. a Frankenstein. Yes, it is. Does that make you happy? I mean, is that, do you consider that a success? Well, I don't feel responsible. Mm -hmm. Even though people have commented to me that they feel we might be a bit responsible, <laughs> and I understand what they're saying, and... Um, I'm sorry. You know, there artists to the general public are some kind of not supernatural, but un, you know, a, a group. Ah, okay. And there was a very large chasm to occupy between the artists and the consumer. The media needed a lot of content, and uh, the art world appealed to. To that readership and yeah the um, we, we answered the call yes right mm -hmm. 
Right, and, and it became a model, and uh, so uh, whether or not you want to take credit, <laughs> there, was, there was some inspiration there, I think. Um, but then, so after that, you did then start the open call program. I wanted some way to create a level playing field and to see if somehow a, a merit-based process would yield something good. Because one of the things that happens now when I talk to young artists, I ask them to rationalize the prices for artists in galleries. Like, you know, do you like that work? Yeah, it's okay. Is it worth 500000 or or a million dollars? And like, they can't kind of wrap their head around the fact that work that they don't think has that value has that value. Not that it's not good work, but it's like totally detached. So the desire was to kind of level that out. And all of our programs try to have that idea. So in selecting people for the fellowship, we will contact maybe an adjunct professor at a university and wherever, and we just go geographically around the world. If we don't have a pin in the map here, uh, we try there. Uh, sometimes with a degree of ignorance, uh, <laughs> which we can talk about later if you want. But Is there a no vetting process? <laughs> okay, we'll talk about that okay. in a minute. And we'll call an adjunct professor at the university. We won't call the dean in an, an effort to validate ourselves, but we want somebody that, and, and we say to them, this is what our program is, it's a non-working program, and we want you to nominate somebody. And they say, great, I want to nominate myself. And we go, well, you can't do that, even though you may be worthy, but we want to use your wisdom and who you know and who you think would be ideal for this kind of introspective opportunity. So they think about it, and, and they're giving somebody a really big opportunity sometimes, you know, a fully paid situation to come here, and uh, they're tended to for a month. Now, I've seen a lot of situations where people are invited to sit around five people on a jury and decide about somebody they don't know. I don't find it to be the most effective situation. People don't necessarily do preparation. Their intention may be nepotistic with the best of intentions. So it just seemed like, why don't we go to somebody who knows somebody well? And if we explain the program properly, they'll go, yeah, this is the person who will really benefit from it. He'll or she will come back and affect people around them. And we found that, you know, this idea of vetting, well, who, who does the vetting? You know, like, who, who has that ability to do? I don't know that I do. If I were during all of these shows, or selecting all of these shows, they'd probably start to look alike. Mm -hmm. And you're, you are, in, in many ways, hands-off when it comes to shows and having candidates and uh, fellows, right? We're hands-off and we're hands-on. The structure is very set. When somebody is selected, they get all kinds of contracts and suggestions, which are only suggestions, uh, and all kinds of support. But the program is very structured around it. So it's got to be three or more artists. The brochure has to conform, not because we don't want it to be an artwork, but because we found 
that people really enjoy an opportunity to read something about the show uh, with the photographs. And, um, okay, we found, for example, that for the international show where people can select any location that they want, that now we want them to have been there because we found that when people haven't been there, the logistics of making something happen are too unfamiliar, even though it's kind of exciting. So, you know, you start out with no laws, and then each time you see you have to control mm. a little bit, and then you you're get providing a, the structural form in a sense. Yes, how but it works. But we don't affect the results of the jury process. And then, while we may make suggestions to people, we say to them, really, um, keep this in mind, this in mind, this in mind, but make your own decisions uh, about what it is. And, and there are two types of open calls that you do. There's one where the work would be shown here or in New York, and the work is shown outside of New York or abroad, correct? And, yes. and, and I think you <coughs> just mentioned the, the open call where you would be in other countries or even in other, other states, or, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's important that the, the work be culturally relevant to that location. Was that something you... Well, we are not involved in that. Right. If you, as a juror, in the next one, <laughs> look at what somebody has written, I would say, I can't give you a percentage, but it would be good for us to know that a very high percentage of the artists in the international shows are, if not local, country-specific, mm -hmm. I think. Part of the reason for that is we don't give people enough money to ship things from all over because we don't want them to do that. Yeah, so there's a practicality to it. So that was about 1998 the, program, the Open Call program started? Mm. Right. And then it was, is the fellowship happening all along the way or was the, the fellowship um, after the Open Call program? Okay, uh, if I may digress for sure. a, a moment. As an artist, I began to feel that I was making collectibles for wealthy people, not having any real effect and not really feeling that what I was doing was important to me. So with Apex, I turned into more of an educator, experimenter kind of thing. And the fellowship is the program that I would have liked that I think I should have gone on. Mm. I think other people should go on, but it's self-referential that way. The jurying process for the shows, that's the way I would have liked to have been juried. So it, it's kind of a, um, an autobiographical statement that clearly isn't for everyone, but there are enough people that relate to both the process and result. Of course, that's not why we're still here. But um, a, a lot of people get the brochures and write to us. Yeah. So, so we know that we have uh, you know, our website traffic and so right. on. And so, forth. You, so you talked about the fellowship as this is something you would have wanted, the curatorial process. This is a way you would have wanted to be curated. Uh, do you still make work? I'm more creative than I've ever been. People refer to this as my work, but you know, it isn't. I, I don't... My ego wants to say yes, while reality wants to say no in terms of conforming to what you're talking about in terms of making art that would 
go to a gallery and be shown as yeah, art. No, I, I had no rules on that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you uh, consider Apex art your work? Not in terms of artwork. I don't Just know. being creative and productive. Well, well, it, it's an interesting thing because artists don't relate to me as an artist anymore, much to the chagrin of my ego. <laughs> Curators don't look at me as a curator because I'm not, and I, I don't, I don't want to be seen that way. Gallery directors? Or <laughs> well, you see, artists look at administrators as facilitators. And unfortunately, now very much as adversaries, the organization to curators more than artists, sometimes artists, is seen as kind of an adversarial one. Uh, I guess, I don't know, I can speculate why uh, later about that, but I don't know. And you see, that's why I'm saying there's almost nothing that doesn't fall into an art category now in terms of an artist saying, okay, well, that's, you know, that's my art. And I mean, I guess I could you know, make a case and, you know, uh, fluff it up nicely and say, yes, this is my work. But I don't really look at it that way. I, I don't feel like I'm so much a part of the art world, but I say that to people and they go, you're 96% in the art world. <laughs> um, but I guess it's because I don't go to things, I don't interact. You mean events or yeah. openings, things like that? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, can, I can understand where this philosophy of um, art coming from different sources, different places, would interest you. In the, in the open call, I, I, I think you go out of your way to try to find people who are not traditional artists or involved in art. And in fact, they can be involved in anything, right? I'm blanking on some names that I had here. But uh, there's, a, a, I think, a show coming up in August that is um, very text-based, heavily text-based. Am I right about that? No? No. Okay. <laughs> I might be, yeah. It, it has happened, to yeah, be sure. But, but shows that are not, that are not f wholly or fully visual in terms of... Expression. Okay, first of all, you put anything in here, and I mean, it's, it's put art. Put in the white box. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm more interested in creative things than I am in art. I feel like we're at a very creative time in society. The, a lot of the creativity is not being directed to the traditional art world, because there's an actual market for it, <laughs> other than um, uh, an artificial market, in mm -hmm. a way. And we're trying to be relevant. When we talk to a curator about writing the essay, we keep saying, be as vulnerable as you can or talk about it personally as much as you feel comfortable, because other people want to read that. They don't want to read the arm's length, uh, hyper-professionalized things that often happen in the art world. And the last thing, I don't know about yourself, but if I have something and it's a hundred pages and it should have been five pages, it's like, make it five pages for me. My attention span is only that long now. And for you to try and validate it as a publication by repeating the same thing, you know, over and over again, um, you know, I'm not sure you're serving it, which is why the brochure is the brochure. Right. So if we can get interesting, good writing, 1,300, 1,400 words, and some good images to somebody. Should we be printing these things and sending them out all over the world? Now, I spoke to a class uh, a while ago, and I said, okay, how many of you read eBooks? And the whole class, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 people, one person raised their hand. And I said, 
why? And people were like, oh, I like the feel of pages. And our books are the cheapest pages. I mean, you know, they're not going to last 10 years. Um, the digital one will last forever. Well, <laughs> yeah, see. whether it should or not, I don't know. But the point is, I don't know at, at what point do we give up, you know, that tactility, which so many people like, to the environmental of like, okay, don't print anything. I, I don't know. And it's something that we go back and forth on. So, yeah, we're trying to get feedback. We, we love feedback. We send questions to fellows and uh, to curators and everybody to find out if um, we're doing what we say we're well, doing. Well, that, that is a, a, a big part of the, the question, right? Um, you have been flexible with starting with uh, in, independent curators and having open calls, and, and I definitely want to talk more about the fellowship. And I guess some of that must be in response to feedback you get as well. What do you see on the horizon? Where do you see as a, a sort of a next offering, a, a program that... The next 25? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, it also the I, changes can be made within the structures you already have, right? Changes to the fellowship. You already made changes to the open call. The fellowship is my favorite program. It has an unbelievable effect on people. Uh, it makes them tend to reevaluate what they're doing and either reinforce it or at least make them challenge it. And I don't know that we've made people better artists, but we've made people better thinkers. So well, let's, let's, let's talk more about what the, the program is. It, it is a very unique program. Um, it does involve experiences that are not related to making art in some ways. Well, I guess it's all related, but not directly in terms of making art, right? The, you, it's it's art avoidant. What's that? It's art avoidant. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so you have to be nominated, and you invite nominators. And again, it's a way of sort of breaking up the idea of, of self-promotion, right? Uh, figuring out venues to be nominated, things like that. And your partner, Nancy Wender, uh, is, is the resident psychotherapist in the program. And there are four days of uh, what you call therapy sessions mm. for the fellow. And I, I actually got to speak to Nancy a little before the show. And, and, and it was really, it's really interesting because Nancy is a, a therapist and she has her own clients and private practice. But this, this fellowship provides uh, an opportunity to, to speak to artists as a therapist who are from more, perhaps more diverse backgrounds than you might get as, as clients, and who are also not necessarily uh, there willingly, openly uh, for help, whereas uh, someone who comes to Nancy for, is there for help. Nancy's practice is as diverse as our fellowship grouping, because she's in New York. And when you're in New York, you're dealing with all people all the time, which is one of the interesting things for the fellow. And one of the things that we spoke about the other day is that if you go to a place that is kind of a monoculture, you, and you stick out either visually or something, you don't get asked for directions because people are assuming that you're not going to know. Here, 
our fellows generally get asked for directions within 48 to 72 hours. So New York has a very special quality about making everybody feel comfortable because they see people that look like them or sound like them uh, pretty quickly. Or, or even just the diversity uh, makes you feel comfortable. But if you're from South America, and it's funny because every time I say something, I know my staff is going, oh, he's going to say that. <laughs> um, if you're from South America, and again, Margaret is running this program, so we should include her. Although I love to talk about this program. I'm so sorry, Margaret. <laughs> uh, why don't you come up? Oh, yeah, grab that microphone over there. We worked it out. If you stand right here, you'll be on camera. <laughs> Should I grab a chair, maybe? Sure. <laughs> okay, but I'm, I'm, if I may, Please, I, I want to make it challenging for Margaret by posing a question to her. Now, Margaret has been on board nine months, and when people come here, it, it's kind of an unfamiliar situation to some degree, and it's kind of like you're doing, what? Why? And I'm wondering the process that you might have gone through hearing about the fellowship and what it was and how much sense you've made out of it in terms of the response from people. Is that a fair question? Does it make sense? <laughs> have you consumed <laughs> the, the Kool-Aid? Kool <laughs> I think it's definitely become a different program as I've gotten to work now with several fellows. So I think um, when I first learned about it, it was, um, I was very interested in the international aspect of it. And I thought that the opportunity to introduce artists to very different cultures was a really great opportunity for building international connections and for expanding people's perspectives and experiences. And I still think that's definitely the case. I mean, we've seen it happen with five or six fellows coming to New York since I've been here. They've been from Kenya and Argentina and Armenia and Vietnam and now Israel. And we've sent in the same time fellows to Australia and to Uganda and to Russia and to Israel. And there's definitely been, for me, there's been a great experience of getting to learn a lot by working with all of those different places and getting to know fellows from all those different places. So personally, it's been very rewarding, but I think working very intimately with the the schedules that the, well, planning the schedules that all of the fellows follow during their 30 days, the program is really more about challenging what people are used to, what they're comfortable with, and all in the context of an unfamiliar culture and city. But it's, it's somewhat less about being in any particular place. I mean, that's why we sort of do it all over the world, because it could happen anywhere to just have this very immersive experience. It's less particular to the culture, I think. I think, I mean, of course, no matter where it is, the, you know, you're getting that very particular experience, but we're building a program of all of these very different kinds of experiences. And in six months or nine months, I think it's actually not been enough time to have enough time to follow up with people and to really see how the experience plays out in their lives and in their work um, afterwards. But we're starting to see some in all of the follow-up that we do. And, and people do seem like their perspectives really are opened up by the experience. So I think 
I think it is doing what, what we think it's doing. Yes. Yeah, our feedback does tend to support that. And we ask people uh, to give us feedback at one month, three months, 12 months. That was uh, part of the book? The, uh, um, the, we did mention, yeah. Yes, um, I'm, I closed my computer. The, the full title of the book is the... Oh, I should look it up. The <laughs> XR Fellowship and Experiment in Virtual Cultural Integration. There it is. <laughs> Tip of my tongue. Yes. <laughs> and there are. There are great testimonials in the book from the program, uh, as well as sort of your philosophy up front uh, in the introduction, and then a little bit of what Nancy does as well in the therapy part, right? If, if you want to mention that anyone that contacts you or us, we will happily give them a free Ooh. e-copy of that book. Nice. With uh, the feedback, do you, how much do you sort of uh, adjust the program or like how, what, what kind of changes to the fellowship have you made through feedback over the years? Well, there are some things that we're responsive to, others that we're not. There are people that will say to us, I wish I had more free time to uh, go and visit art galleries or hang out with more people. And the program is a... A behavior. What, okay, I don't mean to use terms of which I am largely ignorant, but it is a behavioral modification model in that we are subjecting people to activities that they otherwise wouldn't do with the elimination of activities that they would normally do with the hope that they will replace some of their not in our case, but the bad habits uh, with good habits. And yes, we do secretly feel that way. <laughs> um, but the thing that happens is that when you're an artist, your whole life is involved in going to art things, hanging out with artists. It's, it's a very closed situation. And as we get older, we don't do things that we don't think are cool, that don't make us feel. And with our program... People who are adults agree to kind of play a game with us and to do things that they otherwise wouldn't do. And we even say to people that we know there are going to be things that you say, oh, God, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. Well, those are the ones we want you to do because what's going to happen is you're going to do something that you don't want to do and you're going to enjoy it and you're going to go, oh, my gosh, maybe I'm wrong about other things. I think it's a commercial or something, but, um, you know, that's just the idea because at most of the things that we send people to, and just for example, Yale is uh, an Orthodox Jew, and part of our program is we send people to all kinds of different religious services, not because we want them to follow anything, but because there's that diversity, and she'll go to a Quaker service. Do you know what a Quaker service is? Oh, you went. Did you enjoy? Very weird. Weird. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you see where we're going here. Yes. And like, when's the last time you went to a Quaker service? Uh, never. <laughs> really? No. Me. I'll join you next time. <laughs> there. You know. You know. It's that kind of thing where uh, we have the um, Scientology. We have the LDS. I don't think you can go into LDS and look up your history the same way you used to be able to, but you used to be able to, and it's like right around Times Square, and you could go in and put your name in, 
And they have the largest genealogical collection in the world because... Because they convert people. Even when you're dead. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that... Uh, what was the other one I was trying to think of? The um, Mason. Uh, you know, they've got this really fantastic place up here. And, you know, one of the interesting things about New York is, you know, you could be, what is it, the Church of the Spaghetti something? And I'm familiar with that one. No, there is one because somebody, you know, started a church, you know, to challenge the whole thing. Right. Church of the Spaghetti Monster, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you started in New York and you've got 30 acolytes. You know who? Right. Yeah. Immediately, right? Uh, we did one show years ago, and bring me back whenever you need to bring me back. <laughs> uh, and it was about cryptozoology. And it was about Bigfoot and Koopas, Chupacabra, and uh, one or two others. And we got all kinds of weird shit. And we built a, a whole walkthrough display. And then we hired an actor to play a cryptozoologist and to give a lecture. God damn, cryptozoologists came. And not only did they believe what she was saying, which was clearly utter nonsense if you were listening, <laughs> but they asked her afterwards if, they would be, if she would be part of their, their book. For comedy value? She is or? now a famous cryptozoologist. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but, so everything is interesting. So who are the sort of points of contact then for the fellows? Who do they interact with here? The fellows that are in New York, well, they interact with me quite a bit, but Mm -hmm. also um, everyone on our staff gets together and does an activity with them at some point during their month. And each, it's an integral part of their program to to set up meetings with different kinds of people. So partly so that they're not too isolated, but also so that they're meeting lots of different people and, and learning about different people's experiences and and expressly not talking about art and not talking about their work and not, you know, sort of networking, mm-hmm. but really sort of connecting on a person-to-person level and um, talking about, reflecting on their experience in New York. And What are a couple of your favorite activities that you send them to? Right. <laughs> I want to uh, throw one in. Okay. Uh, the owner of the Empire State Building meets with our fellows and most of the people in our program are either artists or art-related, and these kinds of people are the other, you know, the collectors. And they've never really had a conversation. You know, it's always been about some reason. And so they go and they meet with him, and they find out that it's a normal person, and it's a good conversation. Then he gives them a card, and they go to the Empire State Building, and they walk past the line of tourists into the elevator and go up and come down. And one of the things that we say to our fellows is that when you go home, you are going to get depressed because we create this artificial environment of opportunity and entry. And you go home with a lot of energy and a lot of ideas, but you also go home to kids and you go home to the same situation and your friends only want to hear about it for a day. (laughs) Right. You know? (laughs) And, and then you, you start getting a bit obnoxious. But in your head, it's like going 100 miles an hour. And it's like, oh, I can't do what I want to do. But you wouldn't do it even if you stayed here because it's a level of, of travel that's too fast. But after that, all of the things that you've done, you ready? Okay. 
wait, wait. <laughs> I wanted you to finish that thought a little bit. What um, do those th- do those uh, those fellows then ever reach out to you and say, "How do I process this and start putting it all together?" And you know, what's the next creative step? I mean, what's the sort of follow up? Just because we mess with our heads and cause a lot of trouble, you're implying that we have some responsibility (laughs) after the fact to return them in the same condition we got them. (laughs) Um, Some we do, and I hope... No, I I think everybody benefits from the activity. And it, it, it just changes a lot of... You've done things that you didn't expect to like that you've enjoyed... The improv workshop, yeah, that's one that that basically every fellow has the experience of. So the improv class, that's one that it scares a lot of people because you know there's a language issue and humor sometimes. You know that's a, that's a weird one; doesn't always translate. I saw the song that they saying to you and I expected you to come out afterwards but they did that you did one yeah <laughs> it's very liberating once you do it you know you do it and you don't die and it's it's kind of fun and you laugh with other people and then the next time you have a similar situation you call upon that and it's not as weird what were you going to say? I was going to say a couple of my favorite things to send people to are dance classes and very particular ones. One is an English country dancing class that happens at a church in the village. And I haven't been, but every fellow who's been has sort of first approached it thinking, oh, I don't know about that. I don't know what that is. I, I feel shy. I don't want to go. And then they have a great time. It's a, they say it's a very welcoming group and feels very friendly. And in contrast, I think, to a lot of what they experience moving around the city. And um, it feels very open and welcoming. And there's also a, a Buto class that we send people to. And um, that is also something that most of our fellows aren't familiar with before. And um, they really love Mm-hmm. But it's really participatory things that really engage people the most. We also send people to more traditionally tourist things, to a tour of the UN or a tour of a visit to Ellis Island or something like that. But it's we really try to emphasize the things where they're actively involved and doing something. What did you base this model on? My own needs. In a way, what we're doing is creating kind of an adolescence again, you know, that's why I'm saying as an artist, you think, oh, I'm getting older, I'm getting more and more creative. Maybe you are. But as we get older, we really don't get more creative. We kind of focus in more. And, you know, our creativity, our minor variations rather than those, the big ones, you know, we're following uh, a line of inquiry. To digress for one moment, uh, we're starting to talk about the therapy. People from different cultures have different access to therapists. I was starting to talk about Argentina. And if you're from South America, you've probably been to a therapist. We used to make a joke that there's a chance that one or both of your parents are therapists. And in fact, the women from Argentina, both of her parents were therapists. <laughs> if, if you're from Asia or Africa, you have not gone to a therapist unless you've had a traumatic event. There might be some stigma attached. There is stigma attached. And 
the thing is, sometimes people don't know that they're not crazy until they see a therapist. You know, because if there are certain things that culturally you aren't supposed to talk with other people about, you don't. But then you're both having these parallel thoughts that are contrary to what you're supposed to be thinking according to your parents or the, the cultural norm. And, you know, you're thinking, I'm really crazy. But yet you're not. You're thinking the same thing. And so that's been a really great function for people that come and they're still going through the same kind of family cultural alienation from the breakdown of, of living in the same place and internet, everything else. And we explain to people that it's sort of like paying to have a best friend who cares about you and is objective and um, non-judgmental. And, you know, you don't have a dog, you need a therapist. <laughs> so I wonder if we have any questions from the audience. We'll just cut this part out. <laughs> yeah, John. Rolla, come up. Rolla Chayat, everybody. So one of the, the requirements when, um, when uh, you write a proposal for Apex for the um, unsolicited is, um, is that you don't name artists, that you don't necessarily have the show curated in your head. So I guess I'd love to hear you talk about just what was the adventure, what was the, uh, the process of the show changing in your mind, or like, you know, how, how did it, how, the conception and then the realization, what was the, you know, the, the difference or the similarity? Well, the, the topic that I proposed is something that I've been questioning in my art and in everything. I mean, just the way that I, I see the world has been an, you know, an ongoing question, which is questioning the truth aspect of the way that news, are, news is reported, and as opposed to how war is really experienced on the ground when you've grown up in a situation of war, those two different realities, and just kind of making sense of this clash between you know, fact and fiction and, uh, and how they come together in images. When I put it together in words and then had to look at various artists who were approaching the subject, you know, through photography. Initially, actually, I did have a list of artists that I, I, I proposed. Um, they changed. Like three or four, I decided to keep out and included others. Just because, I mean, the more I researched artists, the more I was drawn to certain works and felt that they were more in dialogue with the, with the artists that I had selected. But this, uh, one thing I want to bring up is also, um, I, having experienced war in Lebanon as a child, I grew up during the Lebanese Civil War and then experienced it again as an adult um, in 2006. And so I had those two different experiences also that I was trying to make sense of, you know, on a personal level. Um, as a child growing up in, in a situation of war, war is very much, uh, it's a theater, it's a playground, it's something that you, it's a, it's a space that you inhabit, but you never fear, you never really feel that you're going to die because you have this little bubble, which is your parents and your family protecting you. Then as an adult, it's a very different experience, and it's one where you're kind of fighting with so many different, you know, uh, newspapers and magazines on how the war that you've experienced on the ground is being reported differently, like how it's being presented on the TV screen, how it's, the images that are 
being circulated in newspapers and magazines are very different from what's you know on the ground. And in a way, I mean, this show is approaching that, you know, that it's questioning, you know, the how much truth there is in photojournalism and how much is left out. Uh, kind of encouraging the public or whoever looks at images from, you know, photojournalism to think beyond uh, the images that they're presented with and to question, you know, how this image was put together and what could, what other images are, you know, there out there as well. Really? So you don't see this as a political show either? No, I mean, it's a personally political show. So it's more personal than political. And the fact that you've experienced a war situation, I haven't. So you're bringing something entirely different, you know, in, in relation uh, to these images than I could. But I'm, I'm curious how you read these images. I mean, as a person who hasn't experienced war, how do you read them? As an artist, I, I do look at them initially, you know, visually and, you know, what I find compelling. Then I go, you know, to the understories that I get from you and the artists and appreciate those. And then I decide, you know, are the stories connected to the images, you know, in a communicative, effective way for me. Mm. And I see this much more as a show about photojournalism. So, you know, when you ask me politically, I mean, you know, it's about war. It has that uh, component. I was kind of confused. I mean, your confusion was in the right place because I, none of these images have uh, violent Im imagery. Yeah. They don't. You don't see gore. You don't see blood. You see uh, people who've maybe, you know, interpreted war in different ways and who who are presenting a different dimension to it. For instance, uh, this work by Richard Moss is showing uh, the, the. It's creating like an Alice in Wonderland landscape, which draws you in, and you're you're, you're kind of seduced by the imagery, but. It's actually, uh, you know, a site that, that, that was a site of multiple sort of battles and mass graves. So it's, it's in a way, it's, it's, it's presenting a very beautiful, like a, a beautiful sort of experience, which is laced with, you know, ugliness and horror. And that, that really is a personal interpretation of an experience of conflict that comes from your own childhood and being protected by your mother and and knowing that something was happening but not fully understanding. Absolutely. Any other questions? Can we ask our board member what his experience was uh, working, uh, being on, you, you've been on the board of Apex Art a while, no? John, you want to come up? Well, the pizza. John, come up, let me see. Unfortunately, John had to leave the board because of an embezzlement issue. <laughs> uh, and, and it was very unfortunate. This building is now mine. <laughs> Um, no, just kidding. Um, John Kessler. Hi. Yeah, so it was, you know, I, I, I've been on numerous boards of different 501c3s, and, and it was, I live around the corner, I should say that, and um, so it was a very convenient board to be on. Also, Stephen would want us as a board to really fully understand what the mission was, and so a lot of the board meetings were about the programming and the staff would give reports and someone would Skype in from Ohio or some, you know, Heather would, who did the, the, the books would, you know, report on the, the, the publications. And so we were really kept abreast of what was happening here. The future shows that were coming up, 
the future residencies that were happening, the future um, residents who were coming in. So it was, it was a, it was a very, in, like, it's a very engaged place, a very small staff, and each person, you know, plays, wears multiple hats. And we as a board, it was unusual in the sense that we were not, we didn't have to fundraise, really. Every now and again, Stephen would sort of half-heartedly ask us to maybe, like, think about how we could do that. But it wasn't like your typical board that I'm on where we are expected to write out a big check. Find so people to write out big checks. Right? Yeah, yeah. Or did I pass or up plan- an opportunity? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, not that I have the big checks to write, but um, or to plan galas or to you know like take advantage of your friends who are famous artists who are can, can do an edition, print edition for the space or you know something like that. So that was, you know, so I, I left the board because I feel like it's really important for every foundation to have fresh blood and to have people who, you know, are eager and excited. And so when I found myself starting to do not be as vocal about coming up with, you know, fresh ideas in the mix, I, I admitted to Stephen that I thought it was time for me to leave. Which is kind of unfortunate because we only need three people on the board. I thought it was five, but it's only three, which makes it a lot easier to achieve a quorum. If you have three people, you only need two people for a quorum. Very easy to get a board meeting. Much easier than trying to get half How many of, board members do you have now? Uh, nine or ten. Well, eight or nine. <laughs> and, but I like the feedback a lot, and that's been really valuable to us, you know, because uh, I'm tunnel visioned. Uh, the staff is younger, and the board generally is older and, you know, kind of experienced in uh, stuff where, you know, I've gotten good suggestions. So your presence is missed. Thank you, but but like I'm not inviting you. you, you no, 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 no. <laughs> you will replace me with someone who has like you know tons more energy, and and so when I when I first, I mean, listen, it's it's an indiv- it's a very personal individual thing. You know when you're on when you're doing a job half you know half assed or half heartedly, or you're not as engaged. It's just time to move on. And, John, and there like, were two you know, requirements so. for our board: that you grow up in Yonkers, <laughs> which you, I did. We both we grew up in in like near each other, and, and then you live around the corner. These are not. There's hard. not too many people. Any, that... Has anyone else grown up in Yonkers and live around the corner? Because you're on our board. <laughs> so I used to come to before I was on the board. I used to come to these amazing dinners that Stephen would throw on in this building, and uh, those were kind of. I think Stephen realized that that he was promoting a kind of an art world um, mafia or some sort of like you know clique. Um, and it was sort of like to be invited to the apex parties that were, that were, you know, cooked by the French Malaysian restaurant down the street. And, and they were wonderful parties, you know, but, but all of a sudden it was really, they became like, you know, an extension of being in the Venice Biennale or, you know, I thought I was feeding the poor. <laughs> there see, probably just, were a few poor. There probably were a few poor artists in that in you know in in the group. But um, all to say, I was coming to you know just sort of like feeding mooching off of Apex for years. And at a certain point, I I just struck up a conversation with him, and I just said, "So where are you from?" And he said, "Yonkers." I said, "I'm from Yonkers." And I said, "What where what part of Yonkers?" And it turns out that our fathers had stores in Getty Square. Like just literally, like three doors down from each other. We had the same so, mother. <laughs> <laughs> Separated at birth. Right. 
I'm going to the next improv class, by the way. Oh, good. <laughs> so I, uh, I don't know if you want to mention this at all. Um, is, does Apex Art run off of a foundation? Thank you, John. Our budget uh, is about $400 a year. Okay, it's a little bit more than that. <laughs> but our budget is very low. And, uh, you know, our space is small, and that's intentional. And we're very efficient in what we do. So we do get a fair amount of foundation support, uh, but we also get individual to some degree and a few other places. But really, we keep our expenses down a lot because Ryan uh, does all of the installation, all, a bunch of the frames. Yeah, we just, you know, make to keep uh, costs down. And there's a certain DIY quality that kind of nice, well, for me, for us. So we're very efficient, much more so than most arts organizations, I think. Did you have an idea in mind when you started Apex Art about what the funding model would be? No. <laughs> there wasn't a funding model. Right. You know, it's like, let's have a show. The first show I asked a friend to organize, and the second show I asked all of my friends, regardless of anything else, I just said, you want to be in a show, you want to be in a show, you want to be in a show. Because I didn't want to deal with them afterwards. It's like, <laughs> okay, let's get this over with. Uh, you're in a show. <laughs> and most of them I'm still friends with. So it, yeah. early and get it over with. <laughs> you know, because now if somebody calls me and they say, you know, I have uh, a friend's kid that would love to be in your uh, fellowship program, it, it's possible you might send them the initial application form to fill out, then to have the other person. But generally, you know, we wouldn't even consider that. But And the only reason I say that we could do something is because I want to try very hard not to be dogmatic about what we do and we don't do. You know, if we happen to meet somebody who might be a great recommender, but isn't somebody that we get to in the normal way, you know, then we just have to think, well, maybe it would be an advantageous situation. Maybe we should investigate it. Uh, two shows each season we select, and Sarah Rosenstein? Rosenbaum? Sorry, Sarah. <laughs> when we're looking for somebody to do one of the two shows, we just kind of look for somebody that's doing interesting stuff, and we call them, and they insult us, thinking that we're trying to scam them. <laughs> and we write them another letter, and they insult us less. And then by the third letter, they're going, oh, that actually sounds interesting. You want me to curate a show? I've never done that. And uh, it's kind of taking somebody outside of the art world and challenging them to corporealize uh, some kind of idea that further confuses our definition of art. And Sarah Rosenbaum was a writer who writes a lot of political stuff and uh, art stuff and identity stuff uh, is going to uh, do something. Who's sort of uh, surveying the field, uh, looking for people? Is it everyone involved? Yeah. So uh, why don't we end? If, I don't know, Margaret or Elizabeth, do you want to talk about upcoming events? We'll wrap up with that. Sure. So we have one. Clearly, I got it all wrong. So no, no. <laughs> we have one event left in conjunction with the Light and Wartime exhibition, and it's next Thursday evening at seven o'clock at Mayday Space in Brooklyn, and it's a screening of two films, or one is a documentation of a performance. And the other is a film, both on the experience, uh, current situation in Gaza. The first is called At Home in Gaza in London, and the second is Growing Up in the Dark in Gaza. Um, and we'll also have a panel discussion. So please join us for that. What's the date of it? Next Thursday, July 26th.
Nice. And the exhibition is open until 8th. Well, that's great. Uh, well, uh, I don't think we ever said your, your full name, Margaret Ewing. Margaret Ewing. Yes. yes. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, and thank you, Ryan Soper, who's been behind the camera uh, and operating the board. And special thanks to Stephen Rand for being a guest tonight. And his dog, Bachi. That's right, and Bachi. <laughs> I should also thank Rola and Elizabeth of Ken. Thank you, Elizabeth Larson. And thank you all for coming out tonight. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.